That's great. So welcome to the Pinch of Magic podcast with me, Rebecca Renewin. I just introduced myself to the Totally The Wrong podcast, but anyway, we are starting over because that's what we get to do in life. Every mistake, we get to start over, make an apology, take the learning and move on. And here we are living it. So today I'm excited to be joined by Lilith Lilith Dorsey, who also um, contributed to the book, The Modern Craft. And she's going to talk to us today about her chapter, which is all about African tribal, um, African tribal, African traditional religions. I have lost my ability to talk today. So Lilith, tell us about how you came to write this chapter of the book and why it was so important for you to share this message. Well, I'd worked with one of the editors, Alice Tarbuck, before on a sort of online, I don't know if it was a symposium or a conference. It was a bunch of workshops and pieces Mm -hmm. and things like that for the University of Cambridge. And when she was coming up with this book, she asked me to contribute because she thought that it was, I guess, the question of ethics is something that I think people have a lot of preconceived notions about when it deals with African traditional religions. And I think that it was important for it to be included in the book. And I think that was the overall feel from where the people who put it together were coming from. Yeah. And what's your background? Uh, it's a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> three decades worth. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, over three decades. Yeah. yeah, I mean, my my daughter's thirty, although she doesn't like me to say that online. But uh, <laughs> it'll be our secret. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't listen to these anyway. Um, <laughs> but I think that you know, when I was growing up, there were a lot of things that were not talked about, but things that were done. And I think this is something that pretty much almost anybody can identify with. You know, mm. certain kitchen magics, you take salt, you throw it over your shoulder, you know, um, uh, my grandmother and my great grandmother were British. So we would have the, you know, first foot on New Year's Eve and all of those kinds of things that now looking back on it is really magical, you know, Mm. and the other side of my family, the black side of my family, I feel like a lot of that was more intuitive. I had less contact with them, but there were things like when I, you know, um, one of my aunts came over for a blessing and a feast, a voodoo feast that we do. And she was like, all the food you just made is exactly like your great grandmother used to make it, even though she died years before I was born. So I felt like it was sort of a reclaiming for me and a journey Mm. back to stuff that I didn't have access to. But I grew up like every other witch hiding out in bookstores and trying to find information when I was, you know, a little young baby witch in in the seventies and Mm eighties and getting thrown out of bookstores because you can't touch that old book. You 11 year old kid, you're going to get it dirty. And I'm like, I'll show you people. You know, (laughs) and it was pretty much, you know, back then it wasn't the openness that we have now or anything like that. And my practice of witchcraft sort of just basically grew into wanting to know more about African traditional religions. Um, I had an anthropology professor when I was an undergrad who said there's no such thing as magic in the world today. There's no such, you know, it's, it's all superstition and, and hoaxes and hucksters and all of this kind of crap. And I was like, that's not true. Mm. You know, I knew they had already told me that. At that point, African drumming was banned. It was banned from a lot of different festivals and events. It still had a real negativity to it. African dance was something that was not celebrated the way it is today. So I knew those were not true. So I I kind of were like, I know the stuff about their religion is also not true, that I'm being fed from this, you know, misogynistic, old, bald, fart perspective. (laughs) 
<laughs> at the same time, I decided to make my sort of educational focus that I met my priestess, Priestess Miriam, here in New Orleans, where I live now. She runs the Voodoo Spiritual Temple. She's been there for 32 years. And uh, I joined and I learned her way of doing things and a sort of connection to the city, even though I didn't live here at the time. And so I've been a practitioner of New Orleans Voodoo for, I think it's, I've been with her 29 years this year. So that's a long time. And um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> right? And then life just sort of led me to initiating in Haitian Vodou. Um, I unfortunately lost a daughter and I was working at a church teaching tarot and intro mm. astrology and things like that. And the church was a UU church and it brought in a minister who was actually also a Haitian mambo, girl mambo, Bonnie Devlin and uh, Harvard trained, amazing drummer. And uh, it was just like the universe opened up and allowed for me to have this opportunity that I won't necessarily say healing, but sort of transform my experience to something that was moving forward as opposed to being stuck in the trauma. And that was also kind of how I initiated in La Regla Lacumi, which most people know as Santeria, because I had a legal case because of her death. And, uh, you know, I wanted to win it. And uh, <laughs> I went to everybody. I was like, uh, what do I need to do to win this impossible legal case? And uh, one of my friends was a Santera. And she was like, we can do these things, but it says you'll have to initiate afterwards. And I was like, yes, mm. that's fine. You know, <laughs> and uh, that all worked out to the best possibility. And uh, what I'm left with is three really strong practices. And uh, I have my own house now. I have my own godchildren slash students that study with me. Some of them have been with me for over a decade and uh, it's good. Wow. <laughs> so many questions I want to dive into there. I know it's um, a lot. It's I know lot. it's fabulous. Thank you for sharing so openly. The first one is magic I actually asked um Alice and Claire this question and I'd like to hear your perspective on it too is that when you talk about magic and people that have tried to tell you that it wasn't true bar humbug to that um but what is your definition of magic what does magic mean to you I think it's hard that's a hard Mm. question Sorry, I know it's early for you too. <laughs> right? No, no, because I think it's interesting because I make a distinction between magic and witchcraft. And, mm. and most times when I'm getting interviewed, people ask me about witchcraft. But magic, I think, is something totally different because I think you can it's, – it's both a traditional and a non-traditional solution to a problem in a way. You know, it's about using what you have and using your intuition and using what you know and using what you've been taught to bring about change in whatever situation you're in. And that's what I think it is just basically. But that definition could also hold true for a recipe. You know what I mean? I have Mm. some flour and I have some eggs and I'm going to make bread or pancakes or cake. That is magic though, isn't it? To be able to turn those ingredients into something really tasty that can nourish your family. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's locked in this power of transformation and this power of using tools and knowledge and instinct to bring about something different. Mm. And so then you mentioned witchcraft. What does witchcraft mean to you then? I think witchcraft for me, my definition holds more in nature-based solutions, whereas Mm. I could do magic with something that was not necessarily considered nature-based, you know, although everything's going to break down into the elements, but excuse me, 
there's things that people think of as, okay, I'm a witch, so I hold a reverence for nature. That is something that I can work with in conjunction to sort of have a symbiotic relationship yeah. where I can help achieve my goals and also help nature whatever thrive and flourish that's the word I was looking for and be able to you know exist in the same kind of space and on the same planet we're in okay so let's dive into some of the very juicy topics in your book that even though your chapter is you know quite a short chapter it's packed full of moments that really made me stop and think and you're, I was talking just before I started the podcast and let's start with like stereotypes. And I was sharing about how, you know, voodoo is none of my heritage whatsoever. So I've always kind of like stayed away from learning anything like other than, to be honest, what would be superficial. And actually, as I was reading your book, it, I realized that actually all that did is I thought I was being respectful of a culture, but actually all it did was leave me open to stereotypes and, you know, not that some of those stereotypes you mentioned aren't ones I'd obviously hold, but it, it suddenly realized like the ignorance of myself thinking I was doing like air quotes good, you know, by staying in my own lane and really focusing on like the Celtic nature of my background. But then that does leave you open. You know, the, the, I suppose there was a thing like a little knowledge is a dangerous thing and it leaves you open to those stereotypes. So what are the stereotypes you have? come up against yourself personally against like voodoo and your own practices and what would you like to say to those I suppose I, th I think the the first one is that it's evil it's bad it's mm. fake some of the ones I already mentioned you know and I think that grows out of the fact that it was I mean, if we look at the origins of the tradition, they go back even before, you know, the colonization of the quote unquote new world. You can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're talking about the deities that go back to West Africa thousands of years, you know, yeah. so it does predate that. But especially through the, you know, horrible colonization, enslavement of African peoples, it became something that did have things like hexes or curses or because you were in your daily life getting raped, getting beaten, getting your children taken away from you, getting separated from your families, all of these things and just living the most horrible, atrocious life that we can't even imagine. So, you know, if someone was doing that to you, then you're going to come up with something to stop them and you're going to use whatever you have. And hopefully you're going to remember some of what you were taught when you were back in Africa. And I don't say that as this kind of, I, know, I think a lot of people have this romanticized notion. I don't have a romanticized notion. I know what went on mm -hmm. <laughs> because I'm an anthropologist in addition to being a witch and a voodoo priestess and all of that. But I think that there were a lot of really rough, difficult situations. And unfortunately, that still carries through today. So, you know, I mean, we have a lot of police brutality. We have a lot of racism. So I think that some of the interest in these traditions has been in response to that and reclaiming some of these traditional methods. But what you said about, you know, not wanting to know, I learned British history in school. Mm. I learned, you know, I, I think I knew I remember taking a tour once 
uh, over there. And, and I knew it better than the tour guide. And I was like, huh. And I'm looking at my daughter who also knows it. And I'm like, huh, this is funny. She's got all the Marys mixed up and all the, and I'm just like, you know, and what would she know about African traditional religion Mm. or African history or anything like that? The African Queens, I write a lot about that, you know? So for me, I think it's just an equalizer. You know, we were all taught these other things in school. It's only fair that people who weren't didn't take the time to learn this stuff does take a moment to check it out and figure out what it's really about. Because, yes, it has this image of being, you know, sexualized. But again, that's from the media. It has this image of being evil. And that's sort of a a balance of being out of necessity and and being cloaked in secrecy. And, And that's pretty much the secrecy comes from a safety perspective, mm. you know. Um, I remember taking a workshop with a very famous Baba. He started the Yoruba Theological Seminary, Baba John Mason. And, you know, he was saying that we were in the basements, we were in these hidden back rooms, these hidden back gardens out of safety. Even when I started, you know, it was if I had let everybody know what it was that I was doing, I'd be at risk of of losing custody of my children because it had this whole stigma attached to it. And you must be evil if you're doing that. You must be doing bad things. And uh, it's a shame. No, absolutely. Because when did that start changing for you? That you 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 know now sit here openly saying you have your own house, you're a priestess, you practice these religions, and obviously we know now that your daughter's a little bit older. Um, but you know there was that secrecy, that was that there was that hiding and that need for protection, not just a nicety to be like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to feel safer, but like that abs- absolute physical need to feel safe. When do you think that shifted? I mean, it's really shifted a lot in the past five to 10 years, but I did see soon as that. Yeah. Yeah. I did see, uh, I mean, it wasn't even a voodoo wasn't even a record or voodoo as it's called in Haiti wasn't even a recognized religion until the past, I think two years, you know, now they're finally allowed to do wedding ceremonies and things like that. And everybody thinks Haiti voodoo, it's celebrated. And and no, that's just not the case, you know? Mm. So it's, it's really very recent. My first book came out in uh, 2004. So for me, I think I did also see a change there, but it, it was very quick, very quickly went out of print. It was, you know, <laughs> at one point it was going for, <clears throat> excuse me, over $500. Oh, and I wow. used to say to people, <laughs> I'll sit on your lap and read it to you for $500. <laughs> So it was just really, you know, okay. But no, I think now it's really, it's okay. People can say, um, I used to be a Haitian community reporter when I lived in New York. I'm not Haitian, but but Mm. they were like, well, you've written a lot about, you know, topics relating to Haiti. And I remember going to an event and I asked all the, it was an art event. And I asked all the participants, do you have any connection to the religion? And there were a couple of people that were shocked in the audience, but every single member of the panel spoke out and said, yes, I'm a famous dancer, but I'm also a mambo. Yes, I'm a, you know, famous DJ, but I'm also a Santera. I'm also a mambo, you know? So it was this kind of thing that they were finally able to share that side of themselves. Whereas before the whole audience would have been shocked and left and, and it, it is very even among the communities it is very closed which kind of brings us around to the other thing that I wanted to pull out of your book was this idea of um 
like do no harm. So you're telling me that it's only in like the last couple of years that people have really been like comfortable sharing their their history, their traditions because of the fear of harm, children being taken away, taken away. And you talk about do no harm as a a place of real privilege, really, for people that probably haven't been harmed in the same way as when these traditions not so much grew up because obviously they're, they're you know thousands of years old but in your lifetime when they were in the basements when they we talked about like slavery and children being taken away and raped and it's like that was a need to feel to, to do harm you know to protect because you know as a mother it's like if anyone came near my child you know I you would you know anybody would protect their family and so it comes from that place of causing of hexing of like trying to cause harm how do you feel about that when you see like you say it's often from the Wiccan read of like oh do no harm does it feel like it lacks substance or do you think it just comes from people not knowing any better or do you think they just want to turn a blind eye I mean what's your experience of people that that kind of have that kind of feeling um (laughs) It's early, so I'll say my first thought. I'm a big, like I said, I'm a big Anglophile and I'm a big Skins fan. And there's one line where she's like, my pain has already arrived. Yours is in the post. You know, it's like, (laughs) that was my first thought. It's like, you know, some of us have these experiences where we might have been victims of violence, victims Mm. of attack, victims of tragedy, victims of trauma, you know. And I think that you're right. And in most of those situations, people would not sit there like Gandhi and, you know, just let it happen, you know, because as we've seen, and a lot of times that's not the road to success that could end up getting you killed. So this mm. sort of fierce fighting back is a, is a necessary survival tool. And I think that it does come from a place of naivete. You know, I, I do hope that they never have to experience anything like that. But it really is a reality for people. I'm, you know, I grew up in New York City. I live in New Orleans now. There's certainly a lot of violence, both, you know, racially motivated, just the fact that, you know, it's a rough city to live in. People, we think we have a serial killer out there shooting people on the highway, you know, so it's just... <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, the news doesn't yeah. even talk about it. You know what I mean? So, again, I talk about magic as this kind of solution for people who don't have traditional modes of justice. You mm. know what I mean? If, if there's a lot of inner city communities, mine included, that if something happens to you, somebody breaks in your house, you get your car stolen, you know, the police might might come. Chances are it may be six hours later or a day later or whatever. You know, there isn't this kind of justice or response or care or safety and people have to find alternative means. Mm. It was interesting. I had an experience with my own goddess that I work with. I'm a priestess of Caradwin. She's a, if you don't know Caradwin, she's a, a Celtic or Welsh goddess. And something happened the other day and I was kind of like in this meditation and there were three people who have caused harm in front of me. And she, it felt like she had cut their head off and turned them to sand. And I was like, oh, that's a bit harsh. And then I went, but is it really? Yeah. Is it really that harsh that she would do that for me? And I was like, oh no, actually, they caused harm, you know? And it, and then, then I read your book, <laughs> your chapter. And then I was like, 
oh yeah it's like my instinct of being like a good girl or being nice or kind Mm -hmm. or any of that stuff kicked in it's like oh that was a bit harsh and then I was like no hang on a minute let that not be your first thought let your first thought be actually was that just and it was like actually yes that was and I was like oh great (laughs) next um but it was it was just very interesting that my first response was like, oh, that was a bit harsh. And I was like, oh, there's conditioning for you, isn't it? There's a lot of unpacking to do. Because actually, to do no harm, if you've not received harm, and then to judge others for doing harm is awful, actually. I'm trying to start thinking, what is the right word? But it's 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 very dehuman, dehuman, dehumanizing of people, isn't it? To judge it somebody that you haven't of people. lived. Yeah. It is dehumanizing of people. And I mean, I, I don't even, I think it even goes beyond that. You know what I mean? Because we see that's just the, the nature of things. You know what I mean? Mm. There's consequences to actions. There's, you know, if we look at nature, there's, you know, a cycle of life. This is yeah. how it happens, you know? And, and, for me personally, the biggest regrets I have is for not taking more action against people that I knew were dangerous, people that I knew were going to continue to harm people and not taking mm. all the steps I had in my you know, bag of tricks to sort of stop them. You know, I remember when I first started doing events and uh, again, I was living in New York, so I used to do a lot of events in Canada and I would meet people tell me, well, if we have somebody objectionable people in the country, we just send them to Canada. And then I went to Canada and Canada said, well, we send them all back to the U.S. So it was like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, huh, well, really, that that's not helping the problem really at all. Yeah. You no. Know? But they thought they were living within this kind of nicey-nicey, white light, you know, kind of existence, and they weren't harming anybody. They were just forcing them to go away, you know. But then you're really just making somebody else's problem. problem. Somewhere else that doesn't have the background or the knowledge and, oh, we'll just move them around. It helps no no one, does it? It resolves nothing. No, it does resolve nothing. That's the whole problem with it, you know. And I think that coming at it from this African traditional religion perspective – it really, like I said, it's it, there's a balance between yourself and the spirits. I was I was talking to someone else in the tradition. And they were saying that's the difference that they see between mainstream witchcraft and what we do. It, there's a reciprocity. There's a dedication. There's an honor. And it's it's not really about telling them to do things. It's just about having this relationship mm. where you know they have your back when you are in a difficult situation, and they'll handle it effectively, whatever that is. You know, like you said, it might be that they decide to take them out. It might be (laughs) that they decide to put them in a wheelchair. It might be whatever, you know, and uh, you just trust that that's, you know, the best. What did my godmother used to say? My santo godmother used to say for my most highest good. And I, I thought she would add that to all of her readings and everything like that. And that. I think is really important to me because that's what we're all going for. Really. You know what I mean? Like there's, I want it to be the best highest good for me in the situation. You know, I don't, I'm not necessarily putting everybody in the, in a piss jar in the freezer because I know a lot of witches that do that when they don't like somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I 
let's just freeze that, shall we? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> One of my students, I was like, how many jars do you have in your freezer? I was like, we're going to have to deal with that before you start studying with me because there's also a cost to it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What you're doing when you do that is you're tying your energy to those people. Yeah. So, you know, it's. I'm not saying we should all go out and be some sort of spiritual vigilante, but I think that there's a way, again, for your own personal highest good, for the highest good of the community, you can handle it effectively. Yeah, especially when there's no room for food in the freezer, there's definitely time to look oh, at yeah. the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think what you've just said there is something that um, I very much that very much resonates with me. It's like that that energy of creating relationship with something or someone or a you know a being an entity, whatever whatever kind of language people are using, is to have that re- that relationship and to know that with all relationships, you know. They, they sometimes come with hard work you know they, they come oh, yes. with that that showing up and one of the things I like to talk about is you can't just keep asking in my personal belief you can't just keep asking like the universe or a goddess for something without you also giving and it's not that I think a god or a goddess or something would withhold from you but we know when we're takers and not creating that relationship so so hearing you say it's like oh you're creating that relationship and it's the, the highest good I think is you know that comes from the depth of your tradition whereas I, I sometimes think that sometimes when people get into witchcraft today and they do it just because they've seen it in a magazine or they've seen you know like the witch aesthetic on Instagram and all of that is brilliant that it's I think that it's opening the doors for people but it doesn't give them the depth of understanding of why they might be doing something saying something using something which I think is covered really well in like other chapters in the book as well but what what are your thoughts on that well I think it's really different in the African traditional religions because I just mentioned we've got a tradition that's Mm. over a thousand years old there's a way to ask there's a way to come correct if you will to use the common parlance and when I have my students, I tell them they can't ask for anything for the first year because they might ask for something that they don't understand the implications of what it is they're asking for. You know, you might get the house you want, but maybe that house is on a sinkhole or maybe there's going to be a fire there or maybe there's going to be some other sort of tragedy. So I ask them to establish the relationship for that first year or plus actually until they decide they want to move forward and then they can begin to start doing work. And then again, Again, they at the beginning, they're all focused on themselves. It's not, oh, I want to heal my third cousin, Frida, who's got a bunion, you know. (laughs) 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 Maybe Frida needs that bunion so she Mm -hmm. can slow down, stop doing too much, stop putting herself in the, you know, not best situation. Maybe, you know, you don't know what's up with Frida and her damn bunion, leave it alone. You know, like that again, I think comes from a place of privilege. I know what you need. I'm going to fix it for you. I'm going to ignore the fact that there's consequences to actions. You know, I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect. You know, Mm. if you change Frida's toe, who knows what's going to happen? You know, (laughs) end up running trip over and get knocked over by a car. It's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Better off with the bunion. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's definitely like that. So I think that, and again, because it has been a, you know, a tradition that's been gone on for thousands of years, it's also a tradition in which there's no self-initiation. There's no solo practice. There's none of that. It's about being part of a community so Mm. that the right 
techniques and knowledge from the religion can be handed to everybody specifically for who they are, for their situation. And then they in turn can give back to the community and help the next person and help their godparents and help their god brothers and sisters and really come together in a way that I think we don't see very often today. And uh, in a lot of ways, that's why I think the core of the religion is, is getting to be more fake and, and, and less what it once was. And that makes me sad, but that's just the nature of the beastie. You mean because it, it requires like real dedication and commitment and community rather than just something you can just go, oh, look, I just want that. I, I want this. So I'm going to do like this spell or this something that I've sure. picked up or seen in Cosmo or something. Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the lessons are harsh. I'm not going to lie about that. You know, I mean, I go visit my priestess. You know, what she tell me the other day that I I, I wear clothes that no one would ever want to hit on me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thanks. My clothes are dumpy. All right. <laughs> but there's a little bit of that, like, social clowning. You're going to get read. Your faults are going to get called out. You know, your shortcomings. Mm -hmm. And you have to accept that. You know what I mean? You have to accept that this is the situation. This is what I'm doing in order to try and make my life better, make the community better. All of these things are in my mind. And, and that's what has to happen. So it's it's not... And people almost every day are like, well, there's nobody in my neighborhood, you know, and I used to, I live in New Orleans now, but before I moved, I was coming down here four or five times a year just to do some, you know, rituals and ceremonies and things like that, pilgrimages, you know, yeah. so you're not necessarily going to find somebody in your backyard. You might need to travel 500, a thousand miles to get to see but it's your parents, it's your spiritual parents, and it has to be somebody you trust. So I would rather have it be somebody I trust than some, you know, it's like eating at fast food, you know, do I want to go to the Michelin star restaurant that I know is good? Or do I want to go to the crappy fast food place? Well, if I'm going to die, maybe I'll go to the crappy fast food place. But my plan will include also going to the restaurants where it's going to taste amazing, and I'm going to truly be nourished. Yeah. So Obviously, community, the community aspect seems very important to you. What do you think about online communities? And the reason I say this is because we know living with people, being part of the community, they're not going to judge your clothing, um, yes. <laughs> even with love. They are often hard. No, hard is the wrong word. They're often, they often come with more challenges because there's a truth there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas on, on an online community, you know, like people are like, oh, I don't want to travel a thousand miles. I could do this online version. Okay. It's nothing to do with, I run an online community. I love it. We run it a particular way. However, I'm not being with those people in person to find out all of the nuances of the behaviors that might annoy me. You know, when we gather for an hour, we can all be on our best behavior mm -hmm. mainly, you know? So although obviously I feel there's a place for online communities, how how important do you think it is for people to have an in-person community and how do you feel about the rise of like the online communities that might not have I don't want to say not have the depth because obviously some online communities are very nourishing for people etc but they they still are very different from an in-person community 
I think I would have to evaluate it on a case by case basis. Mm. You know, I think witchcraft is different depending on what you were doing. You know, if you're doing something like a meditation online, I think you could do that because that's yeah. something that you're doing in your own body, in your own space, that kind of things, you know, but I do think there's a benefit to being in a group. There's benefit to that, you know, obviously, you know, consensual good touch, you know, <laughs> I mean, if somebody doesn't want to get in the circle, that's fine, mm. you know, all right. But and I'm, I'm a big like, don't touch me kind of person. But I do understand that there are in those moments, just being in the physical proximity with somebody is very helpful. Yeah. Now, for African traditional religions, such as like Lukumi or Santeria, you can't get a reading unless you're sitting in front of the Babalawo on a mat. So anybody who tells you you can get this thing online and it's going to be fine, like that's just not how it's done. It's been done the other way for a thousand years. And mm. part of that is we have a concept called Ashe, which is like a sacred energy for things. Um, I think sometimes I've compared it to the concept of chi, you know, like right. where everything sort of radiates yeah. with a different energy. So even inanimate objects have ashe and we need to get that ashe. We need to, a place has ashe, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's almost St. John's Eve. And here that's the holiest voodoo holiday for us here in New Orleans. Marie Laveau used to do big ceremonies. And this year, my priestess and I are going to be doing a ceremony at Congo Square where Marie Laveau did her ceremonies, you know, and it's pretty much me getting on the phone with everybody I know going, no, this isn't something you can experience long distance. You're mm-hmm. going to be doing a ritual in the space where, you know, slaves did rituals for hundreds and hundreds of years in New Orleans, Marie Laveau and the original drummer, Dr. John and everything like that. And this is almost to me, I mean, we may do it again, but as far as I know, it's a once in a lifetime experience, you know, Mm. to be able to do that on the holiday with her. And it's so beautiful. And I'm so excited that we're going to be able to do that. And I think experiences like that, you can't get online, you know, Mm. going to the tomb of Marie Laveau. It's not the same. It's like, you know, okay, here's a picture of it, or here's a video of it. It's not the same thing as being in the same space as that energy. Yeah. I was reading an article the other day and it was saying that a lot of people don't travel as much anymore, particularly, um, there's, there's a, like a tradition in the UK, um, maybe it's similar in America. I'm sure it's probably similar in America too. That when you finish um, college before you go to university, or in between university, you take a gap year. Yeah, yeah. you go go traveling, and it was talking about like the decline of the gap year, and it's because so many people can just watch it on TV these days, or they can get highlight reels of other people traveling. And I I wonder whether that's you know there is still places in the UK that people travel to pilgrimage. But it's not as frequently as it would have been in the past. And I wonder if that's because, you know, it's just a little bit more difficult these days. You know, it's like, oh, it's difficult to get the time off work or who's going to look after the children. Or, But I did, I've done two types of priestess training, one in person and one was online. And both of them were valuable for different reasons. Um, the one in person taught me how I didn't want to become a priestess um, <laughs> and do it in a particular way. And, you know, sometimes that is as valuable um, as learning how you do want to do it. But like you say, being in the presence of people and or even, like you say, sites, sacred sites or sacred places where there's a history, there's an energy, there's an echo of, of the past is really, really valuable. And, you know, people still do pilgrimages today and or you know, whatever language people use for those. And I think that there is something really beautiful about 
that dedication of time of energy and resources to our our spiritual health perhaps and something that that got me thinking when covid struck <coughs> and I'm not sure struck is the right word but you know when covid <laughs> happened um was that people a lot of people didn't have a a faith, a community, a religion, a ritual to turn to during those times. And I often think like in days gone by, people would have had like maybe their local church or religious leaders or that they would have had a prayer or or a mantra or a song or a dance or something to perform. And we've kind of like voided that gap for many people. Like they've turned their back on traditional religion not surprisingly, I would say, for for many people, Um, but they haven't replaced it with anything. And like just hearing you talk about the community and and having that that rich history of um, like this is the path that you take, it's very, I think it's very secure for people, isn't it? When they know that this is, oh, for a year and a bit, this is what I have to do. Then after this, there's this. And actually this is how I'm going to, be become this rather than just going oh look there's a six-week online course I think it really gives it gives us that depth of soul stamina almost I mean oh yeah I agree completely although I I could totally clown my god kids because they you know struggle every step of the way they're all grown but you know (laughs) why do I do this I'm like you are grown people stop it now Uh, and that's part of the process and everyone that's gone before you has had those same questions (laughs) no it's true it's true and I think when you're talking about something like spirituality it does involve those leaps of faith you know Mm. what I mean maybe you're not going to initially understand why you do it but then once you do it, you see what the outcome is. You know what I mean? You see what the benefit of it was when you're on the other side of it. And you're right. It was a shame. I mean, I wrote, we're talking before we started about my water magic book. I Mm. wrote, I came out during the pandemic and uh, I mean, well, we're still in the pandemic, but it came out about a year ago. (laughs) I know it's so weird. It's like, are we out of it? It's still going on, isn't it? It came out about uh, a little over a year ago. And, Mm. um, pretty much when I was writing it, you know, even I finished it up in the end of 2020. And when I was writing it, I was like, oh, look at all this is great. I'm going to go to all these places that I write about because I do a thing about sacred sites and pilgrimages and go to all the Brige wells. And I'm going to go to, you know, the waterfall that, you know, the indigenous people revered that's in Twin Peaks. And I'm going to go, you know, I thought I was going to go to all these things. And then it was like, oh, lockdown went, went, went. And, uh, but ironically, I realize I'm right in between five different bodies of water right now and my backyard floods. So it was kind of like the water came to find me, you know, and it was about for me reinventing it. What did this mm. lockdown seclusion, how did it benefit me in ways that I'm not even seeing because I'm just mad that I can't go to, you know, Ireland or I can't go, you know, to Washington state or any anywhere, Mexico, anywhere that I wrote about a whole bunch of things, you know, and uh, it made me realize that my body's made out of water and the planet's mostly water and there's mm-hmm. water that comes through my tap in the kitchen and <laughs> there's water that comes from the sky. So it was really just about reimagining what 
was around me and making the sacredness of that come to the fore, as my friend Vicente would say, and look at that as opposed to looking at what was beyond it and out of focus and just knowing that eventually, you know, I did get to spend Christmas in London. So eventually I did get to travel again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did get to go and do things and, uh, you know, and I'll continue to do things. But for the times that I need to be here, then that doesn't have to be, you know, only about the negative. It can be about, I still have this connection. I can still have things that are positive in my life that I can focus on. I love that. And I think we're all kind of air quotes guilty of that. It's like, oh, I want to go over there and over there and over there. And it's like, oh, look, it's right on my doorstep. (laughs) Actually, I can connect with it here. It might not look like how I wanted it to look, expected it to look, hoped it would look, but actually everything that I need is... You're saying delivered to you in a floodplain. Hopefully you weren't affected too badly by the flood. But, you know, it's like, oh, thank you, universe. Here it is. (laughs) Well, it's funny. In a way, it was kind of a blessing in disguise. I mean, I didn't feel like it when I'm looking at what I thought because I didn't even see my house before I bought it. That's a whole nother story. My best friend picked it out for me. And I'm like, oh, this is what we got. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I love her. She's great. (laughs) So. This is what we have. I have this yard that floods, you know, so I made a rain garden. I made a French drain. I dug out hundreds of gallons of soil. I Now it very rarely floods and uh, I'll reveal it on your show. I've just, I'm still waiting to sign the paperwork, but I've got the property two doors down uh, that I'm going to start a community garden in that the city has given me. So it's like, Amazing. you know, this effort to, you know, okay, here, make lemons out of lemonade or whatever, you know. <laughs> All the other way around. Whatever the thing is, I thought it was something that was crappy. And what it did Mm. was allow me to use the knowledge that I had. I mean, I have a minor in plant science to create something different and to help the environment. And now that's turning into something that's going to help the whole community. I was going to say, and you just doing that allows you to share that knowledge with the community, doesn't it? And suddenly you've made the community garden better, the community space for everything better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I was all concentrated on doing this external thing and going, you know, Mm. traveling internationally and everything. And it was like, no, here's where you are. You know, my local community members came out and, you know, videotaped it and put it on the website. And now I'm like, look at this. (laughs) I'm some sort of weird local agriculture, you know, (laughs) pioneer. Yay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We'll go with pioneer. I like that for you. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good. Yeah. I love actually on your Instagram, I love that you had a black plant and you're like, oh, my goth garden. <laughs> I was like, I, I do. I have a whole goth, goth garden. garden. It's great. We have black hellebores. We have black irises mm. and uh, black sweet potatoes. It's great. It's great. Ooh, I hadn't heard of black sweet potatoes. No, I, I, I love all of that. And again, we can. It's funny because I said, oh, we don't, people don't travel as much, but they spend so much time external that sometimes we can forget our immediate communities are just as important. And I think, you know, as society structures have shifted and people maybe live more in more cities and things like that, that that community hub can go sometimes. And I think there's this thing, I wrote about this and sometimes I think it seems a bit harsh, but (laughs) it's like, the self-help movement that we've been like oh, yeah. immersed in for you know 30 odd years or whatever was I, I still I still feel we're in the infancy of it where it's all me 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 what about me and my feelings and my this which is valid and important and everything else but it ha- also has to include our communities 
it's like we take responsibility for ourselves and we have to take responsibility for our community too. And I think when we look around the world and just shake our head and go, gosh, where do we even begin? It's like, well, it starts with us taking responsibility for us and how we show up. And then it starts with us taking responsibility for our community. And hopefully when other people do the same, those bits of a community that are looked after kind of merge and start connecting with each other is kind of how I see it maybe completely wrong but that's just where I am in my journey right now that's kind of where I am and how I'm seeing things that sometimes people are still like yes but I want this and my vision is this and me 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 and actually sometimes we need to absolutely do the work take responsibility ourselves need healing we need to validate ourselves etc and then we also need to be looking out at community and I just love that how your how your story is showing that you know it's like that oh oh God, I've got a flood. Shit. What do I do with this? Yes. It's like, get digging, get digging. Oh, wow. Now I've got the house down the road and that, that community is forever changed because you just trusted. And instead of having a kind of hissy fit and going to your friend, what the hell have you done this for? I mean, you might've done that as well, but you know, it's like that, okay, this is what we have. How can I make the best of this? And you were clearly the perfect person to do that. Like with your, you know, your degrees and your education in like, oh, I can actually maybe do a piece of this and I, I just think that's really I think that's beautiful I think that's really inspiring yeah yeah I mean I used to be a nanny for my day job for a while you know and when my kids would go to kindergarten they would tell them you get what you get and you don't get upset <laughs> which I feel like <laughs> it's very American yeah. yes <laughs> yeah yeah a friend of mine always used to be like you are, we are where we are that's it no, now we deal true. with it. Mm. That's true. It's what it is, you know, and I left, you know, I, I actually moved at the beginning of the pandemic and my landlady was threatening me and because, you know, I told her I was going to have problems after I think it was 12 years. I, I was like, I might be late with the rent once. Yeah. And she just was like, started threatening me. And, you know, she was already violent. And I was like, I'm leaving, you know, yes. so <laughs> as much as I loved where I was and, you know, I grew up in New York City and Brooklyn mm. all the way, you know, I was like, OK, it's time to not be there anymore right now. And I'm here. And yeah, it'd be nice if the soil was fantastic and the garden was all ready to go. But I've got a hundred year old oak tree. I've got, a, you know, 80 year old mulberry tree and I can handle what I have with the rest of it. It might take mm. a long time, but, you know, we're going to move forward and we're going to do what we can do as opposed to just being, you know, upset about everything that does. Where does that get you? Yeah. What a waste of your energy. So being a Brit, <laughs> how different is living in New York to New Orleans, like different ends of the country? It is. And again, I grew up in New York. So, you know, mm. 8 million people in the naked city, like that's normal to me, you know? Yeah. Um, New Orleans is about 330,000. So for me, this is a small town. And wow, I, that is, isn't it? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I mean, we get over, even with the, even with COVID, we get over a million tourists a year. So it's like, there's usually mm. way more people in the city, but you know, at least half of that is, is usually tourists, you know? Yeah. So, um, so it's very different, but I just, I love to garden. I was never going to be able to afford uh, anything that had a garden in it in New York city. You know, I even, I told you my landlady was terrible. I even had pots out on my steps and she was like, this is an insurance hazard. And I'm just like, screw you lady, oh my God. you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I would do little gorilla gardening things around the city and stuff. And, uh, you know, but, um, it's just, 
I mean, gardening is really healing, you know, so I'm mm. glad I have a garden. As I mentioned, my temple is here. I've been connected to them for 29 years almost. And uh, it's nice to be able to be there, to be able to do events, to be able to help with the temple. My priestess is 79 now. So, you know, again, it's it's not uh, as easy for her to do things as it once was. So, again, just out of respect to the tradition, I'm glad that I'm here. I'm glad I can do things. And uh, New Orleans is more fun for me, though, than New York. I know that all my New York friends are going to get upset about that. But <laughs> New Orleans is a big part, even with the pandemic. It's a party city. It's a music city. It's, uh, you know, I can go out dancing and they, we have little outdoor venues where there's, you know, live music every other night. And uh, that's beautiful. And uh, we've even been able to... Um, have rituals in my backyard, which is really nice. So that's, you know, we had a whole jazz band out there. Um, <laughs> it's like neighbors are invited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So having a jazz band in my yeah. backyard is easier than having a jazz band in my living room, which I did do in New York, but it was harder. Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was great. I think we had six drummers in there once it was spent. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Oh my God. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember when I was doing my priestess training down in Glastonbury in the UK and we're at this house and it's just surrounded by regular houses. And you know, when, when we're all out there in like robes and like chanting and drumming and stuff, it's like the neighbors always used to complain. And I kind of looked at us one day and I thought, yeah, that probably is quite weird really to have these people just chanting and drumming. And if you're not if you if you're not aware of like the the ethics behind it or the intention behind it, it probably sure. can seem very intimidating because you know it wasn't you know that that fun lively New Orleans energy. <laughs> it was much more dirgy, much more somber. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, we're all. I mean, New Orleans is so anything goes. I have a friend, mm. and we evacuate. I evacuated with him for uh, Ida, and uh, he was telling me the stories about when he evacuated for Katrina. And he said when he came back into the city, he saw somebody on a unicycle who was dressed like Santa Claus, Father Christmas on top, and a tutu on the bottom, and he knew he was home. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I know, perfect. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We got a lot of that. We got a lot of that. So it's entertaining. This city is definitely very entertaining. The the world is lacking some of that, I think, right now. Yeah. That that expression, that that ability to express yourself as half Santa Claus, you know, (laughs) ballerina, um, unicycle person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we have a lot of out there things. I mean, you know, Mardi Gras was wonderful. We got to have our first. I mean, they made some of the parade routes a little shorter, but you know, we got mm. to have the full experience again this year. That was great, you know. And uh, yeah, yeah. So, what next for you then? Clearly, you're a bit of a prolific writer and yeah. gardener and priestess and and and. So, <laughs> so, what what does what what is held in store for you next? I mean, I have a couple more book ideas in the works. I'm just trying mm-hmm. to figure out exactly what direction is best right now. We've been doing a lot of filming, a lot of documentaries and things like that. Um, immediately what's next is I'm off to the International New Age Trade Show tomorrow to possibly receive an award for my book, Water Magic. Fantastic. Well, there's only, I think there's, there's, they give out a gold, a bronze and a silver and there's only two, you know, things nominated. So I'm like, I think I'm bringing oh, it home. Let me congratulate them. you right now. <laughs> yeah, hey, thank you. 
Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's what's right next. And then St. John's Eve on the 23rd. And then, you know, just I'm doing a lot of online classes. I'm doing a couple oh. of online classes in the UK, which I think will be great. Um, I guess it doesn't matter where it is, but it still makes me feel like I'm there, you know, (laughs) what are your classes on and where can people find that information? Is it just on your website? People can go to my website, littlesdorsey.com and everything will be posted, updated there where people can see me both in person or in the show notes, folks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything. I do Mm. workshops on everything that we've talked about today. All my books, different aspects of water magic, voodoo. Um, I do a tarot workshop that I think I might be doing um, as part of something. I know this will be an unfair question, but it's like, which which is your favorite child? But do you have a favorite thing to teach? Or is there a theme that runs through all of your workshops? Maybe a better question rather than saying, oh, do you prefer doing this one or this one? I do have a favorite thing to teach. I did. It never got published. I always wanted to do it as a gallery show, but I did a major arcana tarot deck called Mm. the Tarot of Cruelty based on Antonin Artaud and Baudelaire and Poe. It's sort of like a shock value tarot. And I said uh, the reason it should be a gallery show first is because each card comes with a musical note to listen to, a food to eat, an aromatherapy scent, herbs to use in, you know, cooking. And so it's sort of like an immersive experience Mm. through each of the cards. And I came up with it because I was doing a reading for somebody whose son was physically disabled and she was struggling with how to help him. So I was like, okay, if there is a food and a scent and a sound for each card, that could help somebody who might be two years old and not understand what the words mean, but they understand Mm. how they feel when they eat an apple. They understand how they feel when they smell lavender, you know, things like that. So it was just more of an immersive experience. So that's my favorite to teach because it's just so wild and out there, you know, like we talk about Poe and we talk about, you know, the Marx brothers and like, it's just, it's crazy, but it really just as a tarot reader for, you know, almost 40 years now, it really gets to what the heart of those cards mean for me. Wow. So why did you pick uh, air quotes, like like cruelty kind of theme? Because it co- it comes from Artaud's theater of cruelty, which was basically, you know, to shock people into feeling something, you know, he oh. had an essay where he talked about a production of King Lear, where King Lear would just be a 40 foot high beard waving in the wind that talks to people, things like that. And I'm like, wow, like that would yeah. really like just this like paternal figure as this giant beard waving in the wind, you know, like, so it was really this kind of shocking way of thinking about it. And I don't say that in like a violent way, because I think mm. the word cruelty, people think violent. And, and that's just the word that he chose for it, because yeah. it was so shocking. And it did sort of lick at those edges of perception and meaning and how people can take that and internalize it and make it something else. I think that's really powerful, isn't it? Because it makes us look at things differently and it makes us actually feel things. Mm -hmm. And in a world that wants us in our brain all the time, I think anything that can get us back into our body, back into our senses is a powerful thing. And, you know, one of my favorite phrases is like, come back to your senses. And it's like, literally, that's how we're going to ground ourselves in our physical body. Yes. It's like, whether we like eating something or smelling something, it's like we're Mm -hmm. back in our body and we are less influenced by the judgments, expectations of other people right. because we're embodied. 
And it's like, we literally have to come back to our senses. So I love that. And yeah. is that, that's a course that you teach on your website, is it? Yes, that's a course that I teach. Mm. I think I'm teaching it again soon. So yeah. Yeah, keep yeah, yeah. an eye out for that. Fantastic. <laughs> so let us know, where can we find you? Obviously, you've just mentioned your website. Feel free to do that again. And is there any, you know, talking about African traditional religions, is there anything that you would recommend people know wisdom you want to share or I don't know recommended resource for people who who like me of like oh that's not mine I you know I won't learn too much about that and then gone my god that's the most stupid thing ever (laughs) and it's like where where would we start um well I do have the largest voodoo blog in the world it's called voodoo universe it's on pathios if you just google voodoo universe blog it'll come up yeah. And uh, so that's free. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of the questions people have, I've answered there, you know, mm. how to find godparents, how to move forward, things like that. And then my first book was just reprinted, Voodoo and African Traditional Religion. So we redid it for 2021. And right. uh, that's Is this the fight one that was going for 500 pounds? Yes. For a yes. reading on your lap. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You don't have to pay that. You don't have to pay the money. Now you can get the updated version because mm. that was you know, 15, 16 years ago when I wrote yeah. that. So a lot has happened in that time, you know, and Huge it really, by the sound of it. Yeah. Yeah. It really mm. uncovers, it like encompasses all the different traditions. How is Haitian voodoo different from new Orleans voodoo different from, you know, Cuban or Puerto Rican Santo. What's the difference between all of these? How does it connect yeah. back to Africa? What if I want to hear music about it? What if I want to watch a dance about it? What if I want to, you know, do something else about it that again, encompasses my senses so I can understand on a different level, you know? And for me, that's just education. It's not about appropriation. I just, I get so mad because people are like, I don't want to buy your book. I'm a white person. I was just like, what? No, Why would I write it if yeah. I didn't want people to read it? <laughs> yeah. What is happening? You know, give your money to a black person who's writing about a black religion. Please, please yes, do. <laughs> please do. I say, yeah, it's not so I want to go and learn how to be a, a priestess of the voodoo, but it's like, I need to, I, I personally feel like, oh, I just lost out on so much valuable information and experience by not, by not having that. But Yes, but so remind me of the book title again. Voodoo and African Traditional Religion. Perfect. Is it available on Amazon or your website? It is available on Amazon. There's a big picture of me in the swamp holding a machete. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, wow. Yeah, that's worth getting it for that picture, I think. (laughs) That's very cold that day. I didn't have shoes on. Feel sorry for me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, that's true. (laughs) I'm feeling sorry for you. It's like a friend of mine, she's going for a photo shoot and you know, she's she's beautiful and I love the work that she does. But she's like thinking about being painted with gold and like being very beautiful. And I'm like, God, if I had a photo shoot like that, I'd be in the swamp with mud in my hair <laughs> and twigs. Yeah. That, that's who I am. So, yeah, I, I, that will be first on my list after this to go and purchase a copy of that oh, book. Oh, sweet. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute um, honour to chat with you. Um Yes. And I will be following you. It seems like you're up to incredible things. So thank you for sharing. Oh, thank you so much. This was a joy. It was lovely.